you ever seen some idiot that solos and thought to yourself, you know, I bet they've got a lot of wisdom about climbing. First off, you're probably wrong. Uh, second off, if you ask them enough questions, maybe they'll gain wisdom by accident. So throw your rope in the closet where it belongs, and grab a chalk bag for your sweaty, sweaty palms. Because we're about to talk mental training, and the process is about to begin. Moving on to today's episode. We're talking about mental fitness. And there's one really big myth with regard to mental fitness. I think the myth of mental fitness is that it's difficult to achieve, that it's the sort of thing which requires you to find a mentor who lives on a mountain and chants while spending his time sitting on a meditation cushion. This mythological creature spends his life in a state of perpetual meditation to solidify his mental fortitude into an impenetrable fortress which he bestows one bit at a time upon those who are starved for peace and have just a little bit of spare change in their pocket to throw around. Money. That's what brings enlightenment, all right? Hashtag YOLO, motherfucker. You know what? <laughs> there are those who say the brain is a muscle. I say put your money where your mouth is. If the brain is a muscle, shouldn't we be able to come up with simple protocols to train its strength just like the physical body? If the brain is a muscle, shouldn't it be that there are multiple and separate aspects of fitness? which can all be improved? There's another myth. Chiefly, that free soloists are wise. I don't stock any credit to that notion. I started off as a complete idiot, and a brief search through Instagram proves that there's plenty of idiots out there climbing without a rope. However, I've been doing it for nigh over a decade now. And when you're the local free soloing guy in a place that doesn't have any other free-handing morons, you're bound to get a lot of questions. And some of them don't make much sense when you really boil it down on the uh, binary logical level. And my favorite question from this category is, you know, it's a really understandable question, like generally speaking, but when you think about it... Hey, you're that free soloing guy, right? How do I get over my fear of falling on lead? <laughs> well, if I'm speaking as that free soloing guy, I'd have to say, whatever the fuck you do, don't get over your fear of falling. But let's face it, that's not exactly a helpful answer. Well, there's this lovely facet of my personality that once I'm asked an awkward question enough times, I start to think about it. And holy damn it, I've been asked this question a great deal. As a result, I've thought about it a good bit. I wanted to give folks a, a real good answer, and the more I thought about it, the more I figured it out. Thanks, guys. Y'all really helped me out a lot there. Get by with a little help from my friends, and sometimes my enemies. Mental training, well, not that I have enemies, but you know, just people that hate the fuck out of me. Uh, 
<laughs> Don't we all, right? Mental training isn't hard or complicated at all. Over the past many years, I've been able to flip the switch back and forth between the ability to go for it when it's safe and to rein in my instincts and focus when I'm high above the ground without a rope. In fact, I'd say that mental training, in a sense, seems to be a much simpler matter than physical training. At least with regards to the parts that matter when you're on the wall in the moment. For the uh, sports psychology matter of trying your hardest. Woof. That's a whole other can of worms. Good fucking luck on that one. First, I'd like to ask you, which climbers do you think of as mentally strong? Go on ahead. I'll wait. Hey, y'all see what I did there? That's not the original theme, so you can't sue me now. Uh, anyway, back to the show. Well, now I'm going to list a few of my personal favorites. We've got the Charminator, Angie Eider, Alex Handhold, Brett Harrington, Dave McLeod, Steph Davis, Alexander Magos, John Bacharach, Margot Hayes, Michael Reardon, and Barbara Zangrel. If you'll notice, these folks come from wildly disparate disciplines. Mental fitness is no one-dimensional item. Sharma, Eider, Magos, Hayes. Why do I consider them to be mentally strong? Well, I think uh, the clearest example comes from Chris Sharma's pro- uh, process while projecting Jumbo Love. And that provides the most obvious example of what I'm talking about right now. He was taking 60-foot whippers without a moment's hesitation on that route. He could do this because it was so tall and overhung that such falls were completely safe to take. Well, it was nothing but air the whole way down. Eider and Magos exhibit the same mental capacity every day when they commit fully to trying the moves on their projects, despite the risk of a fall. The commonality between them all is this. Even if they think there's a low chance of success on this particular burn, they still go for the moves just to see if they'll make it this time. They have an inherent and instinctual trust in the system to arrest their falls when they're working the latest project. Therefore, the question, what happens if I fall, is the furthest thing from their minds when they try a hard move. They know precisely what'll happen, they know it's safe, and they feel it instinctively. If you never try fully, with all your being, then you can never know if the task or the move at hand is possible or not. Trust in your system frees your mind to focus fully on trying hard, instead of allowing thoughts of what-if to sap your strength. That's the first tenet of mental fitness. You must have an inherent trust in the system, at least when it's reasonable to do so. The idea is to feel safe 
everywhere that you are safe, and to have the wisdom to know when you're not. Imagine this scenario. Down on the ground, you look up at the root and evaluate the spans between bolts. You identify that any of the falls are totally safe. There's no ledges, corners, traverses, trees, or other obstacles for which to hit your cranium, and uh, you launch forth full of confidence. Fifty feet off the ground, you find the crux. You're ten feet above your last bolt, and you're afraid. But previously, you identified that all the fall positions on the route are safe. And yet you're afraid. That's, uh, that's, that's some cognitive dissonance right there. Um, that discomfort and that dissonance between reality and perception, those both are giant flags waving in the air, signaling an opportunity for learning. If you're willing. Now, adrenaline is famous for giving mothers the ability to lift a car off their baby and such like. Dozens of other urban legends, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. The price for that raw strength and power is that you can no longer metabolize lactic acid as effectively. Your body has ditched its endurance to facilitate burst strength. Which is evolutionarily helpful. Not really at this moment as you're ten feet out contemplating life, wondering, can I do this move? When you're in a safe fall zone, but the fear creeps in, the adrenaline begins to spike. You become afraid of falling. That fear saps your endurance and the pump clock accelerates to tick faster. Suddenly, you're off. And the fall is frightening. Thus, we have a self-fulfilling negative feedback loop. Your brain thought the scary thing was going to happen, so you got scared and your body failed you, precisely due to that fear, thus making the scary thing more likely to happen, and then it does, reinforcing your brain's already established belief and instinct that falling is scary, thus creating a pattern which will cause this to happen time and time again. This is why so-called whipper therapy does not constitute mental training and causes many folks to regress. They think it's going to be scary to take a big fall, but they do it after being pressured into it by their peers. Oh, we swear this works great, it did for me. And then it's scary. So the feedback loop becomes locked. And we have to break the cycle. On the other hand, we have the examples of Alex Honnold, Steph Davis, Michael Reardon, John Backer, and Brett Harrington. On their most stunning solos, do you reckon they had trust in the system? I sure fucking hope not. They didn't even have a system. It's a solo. They might trust in their process, as I do as well, but there is no fall-resting system to speak of. While free-soloing, one must possess 
complete trust in one's abilities on terrain, which you know can be controlled. The wisdom you must gain here, which is applicable to all of climbing and all of life, is that while there are many situations in which it is perfectly reasonable to freak out, I have yet to find one where it's productive. So if you find yourself in over your head, and you let that freak-out space carry you away, then we get smashed by an adrenaline bomb and greatly increase the likelihood of a terrible, terrible outcome. The idea is to be able to trust your skills when you know that you have it, to back off when you don't, and to possess the wisdom to understand the difference between the two. Doing this is no small task. There are moves you know you can do. There are, there are moves that you know you can't do. And the margin between these two narrows as you grow to know yourself better. When sport climbing at the limit, one must live in that gray area between the two. During safe climbing, when pushing your limits, you explore that gray zone in between where you don't quite know if you have it or not. There may be moves where you feel that you can probably do it, but probably is a deadly word when you're not tied in. Probably means admitting that an element of chance is present. Therefore, for the soloist adept, the undefined gray area where the outcome is unknown must be made as small as possible. That is the power of the soloist to know one's ability down to a narrow margin. Any asshole can get lucky once. If you're not at least willing to repeat it, then you got away with it, and you can only get away with so much in one lifetime before it catches up to you. And you can't have that willingness to repeat without becoming intimately familiar with your own abilities. Trust in your abilities, and trust in the system. These are the two pillars of mental strength which empower you to venture into the unknown, whether it be the unknown of, can I do this move? Or the unknown of being extremely run out and wondering where the next piece of gear may be found. Or the unknown of on-site soloing, but having the confidence and the ability to get out of a bad situation if one arises. Mental strength is knowing that it doesn't matter if you can make this move. Because you know at a very instinctive level and you feel that the rope will arrest your fall safely. Mental strength is knowing that it doesn't matter where your next piece of gear lies. Because you can handle the situation by down climbing to a safe fall position. Or that you can carry on solidly through this patch of climbing to the next visible stance on account of knowing your personal abilities exceptionally well. The third facet of mental strength is a willingness to venture forth into discomfort. If you look at it one way, 
Discomfort is just another way of saying the unknown. If we wish to expand our comfort zone, then by definition we must venture forth into places of discomfort to know them well. Since we are naturally comfortable in situations that we knew know well, does it not make sense that expanding one's comfort zone requires spending time in discomfort to know it well? When you take a fall, you have to be honest about why. You say, oh, I just couldn't do that move, but you yelled, take or falling. Well, you had energy to say that. Then you had energy to give towards trying that next move. If you didn't try that next move with everything you had, you don't get to say, I couldn't do that move, because you don't actually know, because you didn't try to find out. There is a sand trap involved in the mental training process. For some folks, they become so comfortable with falling that they're actually more comfortable falling than with trying the move. So they don't really fall off. They see a move which makes them feel uncomfortable, and they say, falling! That's letting go. There's a difference. So when you fall, be very honest about why. Let's face it, there's nothing inherently safe about a human perched a hundred feet off the ground on a cliff. However, we humans are quite ingenious. If we can put men on the moon, then you'd think it should be quite trivial to engineer a system whereby a human may feel safe on the side of a wall. However, like all engineering, safety has its limitations in this application, and we must be conscious of those limits. Often, climbers will tell each other, just take a whip, go for it, you'll get over it faster that way. <laughs> Whipper therapy. Come on, if you had a friend who was afraid of spiders, would you fill a bathtub with arachnids and tell them, just go for it, hop in, you'll get it faster that way? <laughs> Obviously not. With spiders and with other fears, we have an instinctual understanding that our attempts to help may only create further harm and trauma if we overdo it. So why do we not treat climbing in the same way? Have you ever seen a climber undertake a session of fall practice where they take long falls only to fear falling even more by day's end? Have you ever seen someone get no benefit from taking falls in the gym or even make such backward progress over time that they become unwilling to even undertake the practice? Those are the end outcomes that I wish to avoid. You'll often hear me state that discomfort is merely the feeling of learning. Discomfort is different from fear. Discomfort is something you might feel when gripping a type of hold that you know is your weakness. It's normal to feel uncomfortable in a place where you are weak, just as I do on pinches and slopers and especially, slopey pinches. Who the hell made those in the hold set? Ugh. We humans come pre-programmed with a fight-or-flight response. And since there's nothing to fight here, we run like hell to escape the discomfort and escape this sequence which actually has a possibility of learning. So instead of running, relax. Slow down when you feel that discomfort. 
marinate in it. Take note of the feedback from your extremities. Does that hold as bad as you thought? Or is it something you can manage a little bit better than anticipated now that you've paused to think about it? These footholds are good. Or at least they're not that bad. They're doing the job which is necessary. And this handhold, it doesn't feel as awful now that I've sat to think about it. Once you notice that your anxiety or discomfort has come down just the slightest bit, move on and complete the problem. Now, repeat this route or problem or sequence several times while improving your bodily economy and your ability to remain peaceful on the moves with each subsequent lap. That's a good head trick there. Instead of trying to send, focus on climbing the route peacefully. What about economy of motion and good beta? Hard to climb peacefully if you've got shit beta and poor economy of motion. So that kind of takes care of itself. And then the send basically happens by accident. In doing this, you move from a state of reacting to a state of acting and contemplating, just as the advanced climber built an instinctive, intuitive technique base through active contemplation and analysis of movement, so must the advanced mentalist develop skills through acting and contemplating, rather than reacting desperately. Through those repetitions, you will build a new instinct, an instinct of deepening calm in the face of adversity, rather than succumbing to panic. I find this useful to do during my warm-up and cool-down. I'll deliberately seek moves that are moderately difficult, but exploit my weaknesses. I'll note my discomfort and slow down to remind my mind that I have control of this situation. And that's the benefit of picking something which is only moderately difficult. Intellectually, you know you can manage the problem. So when you feel that discomfort, well, that's cognitive dissonance. Expectation and reality are different. That's always a huge flag, signifying opportunity for growth. Meanwhile, many runners will be familiar with the idea of relative perceived exertion scale when they estimate how hard they're trying on a scale of 1 through 10 to determine if the training intensity is appropriate for the goal desired. For myself, in mental training, I appropriate this idea as the relative perceived anxiety scale. How afraid are you, right now, on a scale of 1 through 10? That is the notion that should guide our mental training on the wall. An anxiety level of about maybe a 4 out of 10 should be something that we can handle, you are not overwhelmed with fear or with terror, but merely feel a bit of discomfort. That discomfort is something we can work with, but fear overwhelms and traumatizes. So that's the goal for fall practice. Every day, during your warm-up, climb up and find your 4 out of 10, then let go. Letting go is okay here. <laughs> Remember the hand and foot placements from where you fell. Then return to the same place, 
and let go again. How'd it feel this time? Perhaps maybe a 2 or a 3 out of 10? Now go fall a third time. This time it might only be a 1 or a 2. At that point, you've taken something which was uncomfortable and made it fit under the umbrella of the ordinary. In a very literal sense, we've just expanded your comfort zone. So what if it's only one square foot of more comfort zone? If you do that every day, then by the end of the year, you'll have acres of expanded comfort zone. If you do this during your warm-up, then it'll set the tone for your day. It's good to get the jitters out early, and if it gives you a little spike of adrenaline when you fall, well, this is your warm-up. We're trying to get your heart rate up, right? So it just expedites the process. Check the ego at the door, mate. Nobody ever got laid for sending their warm-up, so you might as well use it for something productive. In keeping with that brain-is-a-muscle analogy, I like to break this down into sets and reps. Brains get tired, so to keep your brain from frying out, it's wise to acknowledge that we encounter a point of diminishing returns with this training in the space of a single day. Rather than dedicate an entire hour-long training session to fall practice, dedicate a few sets and reps every day. If each fall, each fall is one rep. At a minimum, I'd do at least three reps. You need that feeling of confirmation on the third fall that it's not scary. That's a powerful reinforcement for your instincts. Many folks will take the whip, decide that, you know what, the next one will feel comfortable, and then they'll move on. But if we really want to pattern this instinct properly, we're going to need one more fall after that to internalize the new instinct and really feel the piece, rather than just anticipate that it might could possibly be a thing that would happen in the future if we... Uh, if we actually do it, well, actually do it. Make it reality. If you're feeling sassy, you could go as far as maybe six reps in a single set. But I wouldn't go any further than two sets in a session. After that, you're better off doing some actual climbing to test out the progress you've made. In all, this means somewhere between three to twelve falls in your warm-up zone, depending on whether this is more of a heavy mental training day with a stronger focus on falling, or just an average day where you're trying to get a little bit. After your final fall, go ahead and lower off. If you're in the gym, you know, this is your warm-up. You don't have to send to the root and clean your gear. Just mission accomplished. Move on. One important fact to note is that the gym and outdoor sport and trad are three different systems. So most people will need to repeat this practice for each. Um, trusting your traditional gear is quite a bit different from trusting bolts in a climbing gym. And your brain knows this, so you have to deal with that fact and confront it head on. For myself, 
Sometimes when I come back from a trip that was heavily focused on soloing, my trust in the system will be a little bit rusty. So I'll keep it at a moderate level and perform two sets of three during each warm-up until I feel back to par. Normally, I don't place much stock in notions of the ego because I deal with hands-on drills to deepen one's sense of equanimity on the wall in the moment, and I find that one's ego rarely comes into play when your foot slips on an R-rated slab 30 feet run out from your last piece of gear. All that comes into play at that point is your will to survive and the capacities you have to do so. That's what I'm concerned with, giving you more capacity to do so. The place where ego most becomes a problem is when choosing what to do with your time. It's easy to get stuck in complacency, doing the same things the same way and expecting to progress. Hasn't it been said that the definition of insanity is repeating the same actions and expecting a different result? I know of many situations within climbing and within life where it's quite reasonable to panic. However, I do not know of a single case where it's productive to panic. Your ability to maintain equanimity on the wall is directly related to your ability to succeed and to your ability to enjoy. After all, nobody has fun when they're utterly terrified. But knowing this advice, if you have your if you're aware that you're freaking out, you might start to freak out about that because you know it's a bad thing. But just remember, don't freak out about the fact that you're freaking out, just kind of accept it and move on. So I cannot deny that the ego has a place in climbing. In my experience, it comes into play before your feet leave the ground and in reacting to your successes or failures. Picking easy climbs to show off and avoid failure? Ego. Throwing your shoes at the wall with disappointment over a perceived failure? Ego. Falling off of a route because you're terrified and adrenaline causes you to pump out? That's instinct. That's what I wish to modify. If we can reprogram your instincts so that they reflect reality instead of irrational animal fear, then you can develop a more profound sense of equanimity on the wall. Simply put, I want your perception of danger to match the reality of danger that you're facing when you're engaged in the moment. Instead of getting too gung-ho and launching in over your head, always search for your 4 out of 10, marinate it as long as you can. Only by doing so can you render that discomfort into a feeling of peace. And the longer you work with it, the more it comes off the wall into your everyday life. So, who am I to tell you all this crap? Well, once upon a time, a belayer let go of my rope, dropped me 35 feet, and I broke my back in two places. Understandably, that had me a bit freaked out. I couldn't even fall on top rope after that point, let alone while leading. Even if I was under my bolt, I'd scream take. What to do about it? 
I was the lead climbing instructor telling people to fall during their test. But I couldn't do it myself. What a hypocrite. But I noticed that I was okay falling while bouldering. So, we put a bouldering pad at the base of the wall, and I got ready to practice leading. So I climbed up, and I clipped the first bolt, and down-climbed a couple of moves so that I was underneath it. Then I let go and fell. My instincts screamed, there's no way that rope is going to catch you, but it was okay because there's a bouldering pad down there, and that will catch me. But then the rope came tight, obviously. And my brain went, huh, that's interesting. And I repeated that little fall until I felt my brain instinctively go, oh yeah, we're fine, before I even let go. Ooh, that's cool. So we packed it in for the day, and I came back the next time, and that memory still persisted. So I went to the second bolt, and I clipped it. It was a little bit spooky falling under that one because I'm higher up now. Now it's definitely the rope getting me, and there's no illusion of the crash pad. Spooky. Curious. Oh, that was relaxed. Three falls, but a changing experience. Well, then I pushed it to the third bolt. I fell below the bolt. Then I practiced equal with the bolt. Then I practiced falling six inches above it. Hmm, now we're getting somewhere. And as I progressed up the wall, over the space of weeks and months, practicing this at each bolt, because it, it took me weeks and months, because I was totally wigged out. Most of the people that I've uh, applied this process to have gotten where they need to be much faster than I did because they didn't have that extreme trauma to overcome. But I pushed it out to the fifth bolt, sixth bolt, seventh bolt, eighth bolt, and I'd fall six inches under, then I'd fall equivalent with the bolt, then I'd practice falling six inches above the bolt, now a foot, two foot, three foot, I'd practice falling equivalent with the next bolt. And then. I practiced falling at the next bolt with clipping slack. And I got to where I could take that fall, willingly, anywhere on the wall. So the next step from there was to put practice to practice. So I started going for it, climbing routes. And when I'd get to that move where I, I felt hesitant about making it, Cowabunga, dude. Try it with everything you've got, even though you think you're going to fall. Because you might not be right. It's amazing how often you think, I mean, just think about your progress so far. How many times have you thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this? And then you do it. That goes right down to the level of individual moves. So when you're up there leading and you get spooked out, as long as the fall position is safe, go for it. Practice going for it. It is, it's try hard. Try hard is a practiced skill. 
and it's one that you have to develop in that way. So who the hell am I to say these things? I'm someone who's lived it and done it the hard way and who's run several friends through the process to verify that it's not just me, that I'm not just some freak of nature. I had a bad fall while trad climbing in Yosemite, and I was horrified after that, and I had to gain it all back again, and I did, through following this method. And, you know, I went out on my uh, Thanksgiving break last year. Yeah, 2018. And while I was in Chattanooga, I actually did a little bit of fall practice on trad and started transferring these skills into that realm. And so it's, uh, I didn't just make this up out of thin air. I've lived it. I've done it. I've heard it said by Dave McLeod that the difference between the pros and us is only 4%. Not that Adamandra is a mere 4% stronger but rather that he tries 4% harder, every time. In trying harder, he holds on 4% longer and gets 4% more training stimulus while becoming 4% more likely to succeed. 4% isn't much, but if credit card debt has taught me anything, it's that compound interest over years and decades is a hell of a thing. So get out there and get uncomfortable and get your 4%.